Are you ready for God's Word today? All right, grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And around here, we like to stand for the reading of God's Word together because how many know this isn't a book of suggestions? This isn't just a, a good book. This is God's Word. Amen? And so we stand when we read God's Word. Luke chapter 9. So just, I love to give a little background, a little what we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is really how we interpret, but to interpret the Bible, you have to understand who it was written. And, and, and I need to tell you something, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know that our culture knows this really well. So we're in a series called Christ versus Culture. Christ versus culture. And, and I don't have time to teach this, but just so you know, because I've heard people say, well, this is God's love letter to me. Now, I understand the sentiment of that, right? And yes, this is for you, but this is what you need to understand about reading your Bible. It was not written to you. It was written for you, but not to you. Now, why do I say that? Because a lot of people like to pick and choose verses as though that verse was a cookie for them. And, and sometimes we get things out of context and in error because we think, well, this was just written to me and I'll just, I like this verse or I like that verse, right? Like, for instance, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, a lot of people love to put that on their football helmet or something like that. You know what I'm saying? And, and I enjoy the sentiment, God is with us and God is for us. And that is true. But when Paul wrote that, he didn't write it to the football player on Friday night. Paul wrote it, are you with me, to the Philippian church while he was in prison and he was explaining how in the harshest of circumstances, God had made him content and was sustaining him and that he could do all things in Christ. Are you with me? So while if you want to and need to use it on your football helmet, I don't think God's dishonored in that, but sometimes it's helpful to know that was written to the Philippians but it was written for you. And that's why we talk about hermeneutics and interpreting the Bible. And so today we're in Luke. Luke was a, um, possibly a Gentile. If so, he's our only Gentile writer of gospel, as far as gospel writers. So there's two theories. Neither can be completely prove, proven. And there's good arguments for both. And I won't go through all that. But what you need to know is he has a lot of Greek culture and he's explaining a lot of Jewish culture to the, the, the Gentiles, if you will. And so he was, he, you know, so this is kind of how he's writing. But the cool thing about Luke is he was a physician and he was a, he, he's really our New Testament historian because he wrote Acts and Luke as a two volume set, if you will. That's 28% of your New Testament. Most people say, well, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. It's not actually true. Luke is the largest contributor to the New Testament at 28%. Paul, I think, is around 24%. Okay? And so Luke gives us history, and he gives us Acts. And, and Acts and Luke were written synonymously, meaning the author does not tell us who it is. So we have to deduce who it is. And, and the reason they arrived that Luke wrote this was, on Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts, the narrator changes from third-person third pronouns like them and they to first-person like we, first-person plural. So like we and us. And what we know is Luke joined Paul at Trous in that second missionary journey. And because of that, it has been concluded along with a lot of other factors that Luke must have written this. Cool fact. I love Bible fun facts. 
There are 84 different things that Luke documents in the book of Acts that are historically or you could even say politically or geographically correct. And some of them are small little details that you wouldn't even think to look for. And the reason that's cool is because it speaks to how accurate Luke was with his writing. Does that make sense to everybody? So in Luke chapter 9, what's going on? This is the gospel account. So now we're talking about what's going on with Jesus. So the date would have been A.D. 29. This is one year before Jesus crucified. Jesus crucified in 30 A.D. Uh, we know that historically to be true. A lot of people say 33, and there's a whole reason why. But just know the correct date is 30, okay? And... Um, and so this is 29 AD, the spring of 29. Jesus is in Bethsaida. You actually know of the town of Bethsaida. It was actually the hometown to uh, Peter and Philip and Andrew. Now, Peter's, home, Peter's living in Capernaum when, Jesus, when he meets Jesus or Jesus calls him. But he's actually from Bethsaida. And you know about Bethsaida because there were some miracles, some cool things happened in Bethsaida, like feeding the 5,000 happened in Bethsaida, right? And then walking on water, that happened right outside of Bethsaida. Um, and then Jesus heals a blind man in Mark 8, but he, when he heals the blind man, he takes him out of Bethsaida. He says, come with me out of Bethsaida and heals him. Now, why did he do that? Because Bethsaida was one of the towns that Jesus cursed, saying if the miracles that were done in Bethsaida, in you, Bethsaida, woe to you, is one of those woe statements, y'all. Woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented. Now, you need to know why that was like, and you know, like that was an incredible insult. Because Tyre and Sidon were pagan. They were outside of, of the land of, of, of the Jews, right? In fact, Jezebel was from Tyre and Sidon. And so Baal worship. So, I mean, he's basically saying these pagans would have turned to God and you didn't. And you're Jews, you know, essentially. And so, so anyways... So that's there in Bethsaida, and so he sent out the 12. They came back all pumped up because they'd been casting out demons and stuff, and they're telling all their war stories. And then Jesus kind of turns and starts talking about the fact that he's going to have to suffer some things, and then he turns that conversation to what we're about to read uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Very familiar verses, but we're going to talk about them today. It says, and he said to all, now you have to understand, he's not just talking to the disciples, but he's talking to the disciples along with some close followers, which would have included women like Salome, uh, Mary Magdalene, and also a crowd. So he's got a, a lot of people. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Interesting enough, right after this is the Mount, uh, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So today, here's what I want to talk about. I, I, asked, I was trying to think of all these titles every week. I make a, you know, write a message, and then I have to try to think about how to title it. And I was asking the Lord, like, I want a catchy title, and God doesn't ever give me catchy titles. I wish he did. I wish I was cool. I wish I was creative. And so, but this is what came to my heart when I asked God. I'm like, what? And it's an emphatic statement. So the title today is actually an emphatic statement, and it's this statement. Do not follow your heart. Do not, don't follow 
your heart. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for this moment and opportunity. God, I ask that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, change our lives. Let us take in your word, the seed of the word of God, and let it produce fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Yeah. So don't follow your heart. <laughs> Listen to your heart. No, don't. No, don't. Um, so in this series, Christ versus Culture, last week we talked about truth. We talked about postmodern relativism. And, and I know some people may think, Pastor, you know, can you just give a good sermon? The answer is no. I wish I could. You know, could you just give, you know, just a good churchy thing? No. Because the truth is, what I'm watching is our culture is doing a better job of discipling than our church is doing. The church, by and large, is, is not discipling the way we need to disciple. That's why we as a church, we start offering classes. We started pushing uh, groups. There's several things we're doing, First Step, but also Core and all the other classes that come with that because we have to disciple better. And what I'm seeing, kind of like last week, we talked about here's what's going on in culture. That's how I wanted to do kind of these messages. Like, what is the message of culture, and how does that line up with what Jesus said? I, I want to call the series, That's What He Said. But some people would get that. But anyways, um, but, but, but I want to look at some of these, these really <laughs> mantras, I guess, from culture and compare them to the teachings of Jesus. And the reason is because we have a lot of people in the church. We live in a culture where everyone is Christian, but I'm not sure everyone's really following the teachings of Jesus. In fact, I know they're not. In fact, um, there were two surveys that I looked at, and you can see them online. Uh, one of them was done by the Pew Research Center, and they do really good surveys. This one's several years old. But they did a survey in America, and they said, how many people claim to be Christian? Well, the results were actually positive. They were encouraging. Because when the results came back, it said 66% of Americans claim to be Christians. Well, that sounds really good. Like, praise the Lord, we're winning. But then George Barna did another study, and he actually did, his survey was called the American Worldview Inventory. And what he discovered, the findings of this survey, was that while it is true, 66% of people claim to be Christian, only 6% of those claiming to be Christian actually subscribe to, adhere to a Christian worldview. So if you do the math, that would mean 90 or 91 percent of Christians don't actually live out a Christian moral view or a Christian worldview. So kind of what I said last week, I think we can get in here and pray, Lord, save the world. My prayer lately has been, Lord, save the church. Because until the church gets saved, we cannot get the world saved. It's kind of like when Peter stood up and said, let judgment begin. There's a lot of Christians, bring judgment on the world. But Peter said this way, let judgment begin and let that judgment begin at the house of God. And so when you're looking at culture, there is this mantra. It really comes out of uh, secularism. 
I know you want to talk about these things, but you, the, I just think you need to know this, the world in which you live. And so secularism, really today, this message in our culture is follow your heart. You do you, boo. Live your best life. And the problem is, it's now in the church. Because now we have a progressive Christianity, which is not even Christianity at all. I don't have time to talk about what they believe, but maybe that'd be another conversation for another day. But progressive Christianity, they use Christian terms, but they've minimized. In fact, one progressive Christian, he was actually an author, but he subscribes to progressive Christianity. Basically, and I'll summarize what he said. He basically said the, the Apostle Paul was elementary in his understanding of doctrine and God, and we have progressed beyond that. Now we are, we are more authoritative than the Apostle Paul, and that's why essentially we can live in sin. I mean, I'm just going to paraphrase what he was actually. He was actually making a justification for living the way he wanted to live because we now know more than Apostle Paul. Now I'm sitting here thinking because I read the Bible. I don't think he has. See, I read the Bible, and I remember the Apostle Paul had, according to Acts chapter 9, he got knocked off his horse and had this incredible encounter with Jesus Christ. Then he spent several days with Peter and some of the apostles learning from their firsthand account of living with Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul tells us he had so great a revelation he couldn't even share it with us because he was caught up to the third heaven. And I, my question I had for this person, who I have a lot of things I'd like to say about their work and writing because it's anti-Christ and not biblical, but it's in the name of some new genre of Christianity, was, now, did you go up to the third heaven? Because I haven't been. And since I haven't been, I'm going to trust in the Apostle Paul. Because he went. See, I didn't walk with Jesus, but Peter did. I'm going to go with what he said. Right? I didn't hang out with Jesus for three years, but Matthew did. I'm going to trust what he said. Are you with me? But this is just secularism in Christianity rebranding, essentially, as a progressive Christianity. And it's not even biblical. So what does secularism believe? Well, essentially, four main things secularists believe. They're not really naturalists. So the difference is a naturalist is typically an atheistic worldview and they just believe everything can be explained by science. And the truth is, science, if you remember the scientific method, science is about what you can observe. So science is about understanding what is, but science does not tell you how it came to be. So any atheist that tells you that somehow evolution or science can tell us about the creation of the world, they're actually lying because it cannot. It tells you about what has been created, not how it was created. In fact, science doesn't say anything scientists do. And most of your atheistic scientists start with an atheistic, atheistic bias. Anyways, I just, I don't know. I think you need to be armed with, with the truth. But secularists actually kind of, they don't believe in faith or the supernatural. They're kind of an agnostic kind of, in other words, we don't know. If, in fact, a secularist would tell you, you know, God's a guess. He may be, he may not be, I don't know. But kind of here's the four fundamental things of secularism, and then I'm going to show you how it's in the church, and then we're going to talk about it, uh, what Jesus actually said. But secularism says, number one, that the goal of life, are you ready for this? The goal of life is to be happy. Let's be happy. Happiness is the ultimate goal. You know what the guide is on how you find this happiness? Your feelings. That's right. Let your feelings guide you. 
and your feelings will guide you into this utopia of happiness. You know what the ultimate sin is, according to secularists? Judge. Don't you judge me. I'm living my truth. I'm happy, right? And then the last thing is God is the ultimate guess. So happiness is the ultimate goal. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Judgment is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. He may be, he may not be. I don't know. It's not really that important because I'm on a journey to find myself and my happiness. The problem is, I don't know if you're paying attention, but I do this because this is where I live and work every day. I'm starting to see this watching different pastors, their social media, books that are published, sermons that are preached. And the church is buying into this because now the overwhelming message of the church is we're all concerned about everybody's happiness. Like, we, we, hey, listen, God wants everything in your life to work out. And you may be going through something hard, but God's going to turn it around. Now, I'm not saying there's not an application for that, and I can quote the scripture for it. But all of a sudden, we're appealing to people's carnal natures inside the church. We're not telling them that we're called to live a disciplined life, that God wants to kill your flesh, right? That sometimes Christianity is hard and sometimes life doesn't actually make sense. We don't actually talk about how life is because that's not sellable, it's not marketable, and people don't show up for it. So we make God this supernatural being that chases Christians around to sprinkle a little Jesus dust on everything and make it happy and make it all work out. And God cares about all these little ancillary things and God just wants you to be happy and God wants you to have a good day and a good life. And you say, well, if you're sitting here like, well, isn't that the gospel? I'd say, read the New Testament again. Because the people that followed Jesus, uh, many of them were put to death. All of them were persecuted. Some were tortured. Some got put to death quickly. That was kind of a nice thing. And so the reality is the gospel doesn't promise you a happy life. That's not the application of the gospel. The application of the gospel is a holy life where you get to know God, where you get to realize eternal significance and purpose, and where you get to be with Him forever, eternal life, if you will. See, when you're talking about a, a worldview, because secular, you know, there, there's this, you know, the idea of a worldview. We talked about the worldview study. This is the five things a worldview has to speak to. Origin, where I came from. Identity, who I am. Meaning, why I'm here. Morality, what's right and wrong. And destiny, where am I going to be when this is all over? The Christian worldview is the only one that can speak clearly, definitely, and absolutely to all five of those. Do you hear what I said? An atheistic worldview can't speak to those because atheistic worldview doesn't understand origin. They can't, they can't speak to it. They, they, their thought is if they're really responsible scientists and scholars, they're like, if we keep studying science, sooner or later, it's going to tell us how we got here. They're being responsible. Right? So you can't talk to that one. And then an atheistic worldview, when we talk about, well, what is my identity? Well, it's just whatever you want it to be because it comes from you. What is your meaning? Well, whatever, whatever you call flourishing or fulfilling, that must be your meaning. Well, what's right or wrong? Well, I'm not saying atheists are immoral. Many of them are very moral people. But without going into it, and you've heard me explain this, you can't, you can't justify an objective moral standard without God. So without God, there actually is, there's no way to say something's right or wrong because it's all subjective. And then the last thing is, well, where do we go? According to atheists, we don't go anywhere. We just, you know, you just die, right? But according to God, well, there are two options, heaven, 
and hell. Heaven for those that choose now to be with him forever and hell for those who choose not to be with him. He honors them when they pass away because if they don't want to be with him now, he's not going to force them into his presence for all eternity. Right? So the problem I have is I think secularism is, is entering into the church. And I want to talk about it because what Jesus does is he says something here with an absoluteness and with a clarity that I want us to understand. He looks at people and he says, if you want to come after me. Now, there's, that's an if because maybe I want to come after you. Maybe I don't want to come after you. And if you're like me and you're like analytical, maybe you want to understand, well, why should I come after you and you know, help me out with this? And he answers all that in this phrase, in this, in this dissertation. He says, if you want to come after me, he tells us how to come after him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, right? Okay, well, that sounds hard. Time out. The Christian life is hard. That is why Jesus said, wide is the path that leads to destruction, right? Like the psalmist once said, there's a highway to hell. That's what I'm saying. Y'all got it. ACDC, right? Anyways. But he said, narrow is the path that leads to life, right? And, and so he says, hey, if you want to come after me, you need to understand it is not a rose garden. And I need to tell you, like, I want to be straight up honest with you. If you're not following Jesus and you're thinking about it, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not easy. It's not easy. In fact, if you're here and you've been following Jesus and you're like, I thought it was supposed to be easy, someone misinformed you. Right? So let's lay that. But he said, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Well, I don't know, Jesus. Why should I do that? Then he continues. Because. So here we go. Are you ready? Here is why you do the hard work. Here is why you make the difficult choice. Here is why you stick with Jesus when life doesn't make sense. Because if you try to save your life, you'll destroy it. But if you bring your life to him, he'll save it. This is an absoluteness and a clarity that we need in our church and culture. There are only two options. You take your life into your hands. Listen to your heart. No. And you lose your life or you put your life in his hands and he saves your life. Those are your two options. In a world that tries to, to give you tons of options, one of the things the the, the uh, survey about worldviews determined was that many Christians have a worldview that is amalgamation, that's an amalgamation of all different types of worldviews. In fact, it's inconsistent and incoherent, but it's how they feel or what they want to be true. So we have Christians who don't believe there's a hell. We have Christians who's not sure there's a heaven. We have Christians who think there's a heaven. It's all these things. But here's the bottom line. It's what Jesus said. Come back to Jesus, like, hey, here's my worldview. <laughs> this is how things really work. This is how destiny really ends up. This is how it really goes. You only have two options. You don't get to pick and choose. Well, I like this, I like that, I like this, I like that. No, it's not like that. Two options. You trust him and follow him, and he saves your life. You trust you and follow you, and you lose your life. See, culture says, just follow your heart. Let's see what Jesus said. This is kind of fun. Culture says, oh, just follow your heart. Here's the words of Jesus. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, 
adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Listen to your heart. Right? What did Jeremiah say? What does the Word of God say? By the way, Jesus quoted Jeremiah. He quoted Jeremiah as Scripture, as the Word of God, as authoritative. A lot of people say, well, Jesus never said anything about that. Well, the question is, did he quote the Old Testament? Because Jesus quoted 14 of the Old Testament books. He referenced more than that. And he quoted it as the Word of God, and he quoted authoritatively. One of the ones that he quotes is Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah, should we listen to our heart? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me help you with what Jesus would say to those who say, follow your heart. Jesus would say, no. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Why? Because you're not going to like where it ends up. When he says... If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. And if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it or you'll save it. Here's what he's saying, if you think about it this way. He is saying that you and me, we do not have the power to save our life. But we do have the power to surrender to the one who can. Let me say it another way. We don't have the power to make life work out. But we have the power to surrender to the one who does. And Jesus is saying, you can follow your heart or you can follow me. They're not synonymous and they don't lead to the same place. So let's talk about it. Now if we're like, well, man, I want to save my life. Well, how do I save my life? Well, we're back to three things. You ready? Here we go. Number one, we're back to this, and I call this word desires. We're back to our desires. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Now, this is totally against culture because what's the message of culture? Indulge yourself. Your desires are who you are and who should tell you not to be who you are? Jesus. Like, this is our culture. You know, hey, desires are always right. Time out a minute. This literally is a mantra of culture. Follow your desires. And, you know, desires are always right. Time out. Come out. Just a quick survey. Has anyone in this room that's been living life more than, I don't know, a day, have you ever followed your desires only to find out that was a bad idea? And it could have been something simple. It, it could have been the second piece of cake at 10 o'clock at night. And you felt like, I desired it. And now I'm up with it, right? It could have been something simple. It could have been like, I know it's 11 o'clock, but that cup of coffee looks so good. And now it's 2 o'clock in the morning. and you're and, and, But I desired it. It sounded so good. It could have been something simple, right? It could have been everybody, including God, telling you don't date them. But, oh, they're so handsome. Oh, my gosh, she's so amazing. And then you find out that was bad. Oh, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Pray. Thank you, Jesus. All right, anyways. So is it true then that our desires are always right? No, it's not true. And we know it, but it sounds good when you want to do what you want to do. 
What a girl wants, what a girl needs is to follow Jesus. The truth is, like Jesus, like don't follow, listen, don't follow your heart because out of your heart comes all this evil stuff and murder and adultery and sexual immorality. And we read documentaries and we watch, do- I don't, some people watch documentaries like on Jeffrey Dahmer. You understand he was just following his heart. All of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, oh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work out. And that's why Jesus said, hey, your desires typically aren't right. In fact, this is what James, the brother of Jesus, actually said, James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Do you see that? Now watch verse 15. Because then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it grows up, brings about death. Here's what he said. Your desire is going to give you a sin baby that's going to kill you. That's what he just said right there. That's just a loose kind of Marty abridged, unabridged, undocumented, certainly not authoritative version. But you understand what he just said. Here's what James is saying. Don't, don't, follow, don't follow your desires. In fact, th- this is what Isaiah 53 says. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Why? We turn to our own way. And then it's redemptive, Isaiah 53 is messianic, because then it says, and God has laid the iniquity of us all on him. In other words, Jesus paid. Listen to me so carefully. Jesus paid not so you could be free to follow you. Jesus paid so you could be free to follow him. So in Christ comes, and and this is what's so good, in Jesus comes the realization of true desire. Because people say, well, pastor, are you saying I can never have any desires? And, and I can, I, you know, that, that sounds like a very bland, not fun life. No, 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 no. This is what's great. The redemptive power of the grace of God, he redeems our desires. In, in fact, watch this, Ezekiel 36, 26, because this is, this is a scripture talking about after Jesus has come and the Holy Spirit, then we can receive the Holy Spirit, what God actually does. Ezekiel 36, 26, and he says, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I'll put that within you. And I'll remove that heart of stone and flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's what, listen, this is what you got to understand between following your heart and following Jesus. Please hear me. According to the Bible, the flesh of man, our appetites are never satisfied. I'm living proof of this. You can ask Jana. I can eat an ungodly amount of peanut butter, uh, peanut M&Ms. In fact, any M&M, really, most M&Ms. And no matter how many I eat, you know what I think? I'd I'd like one more. And I'll get one. I'll think, you know what? It'd be, be one more. We, we were at her parents' house this, this past weekend, and her mom knows this, so her mom buys peanut M&Ms and puts them right by the couch where I'm going to sit. I ate a whole bowl. In two days, I ate a whole bowl of peanut M&Ms. You would think at some point they would get old. You would think at some point they wouldn't taste good. But that is not the case. When the bowl was empty, my thought was, darn, I could eat some more. The flesh is not satisfied. This is what you need to understand. 
in and of yourself, left up to yourself, your desires, you have desires that can never be satisfied. What Jesus Christ promises you is that he will give you new desires which he alone will fulfill. So you can live your, follow your heart with your desires that you can't fulfill or come to him and let him redeem your desires and give you desires that he himself will fulfill. What sounds like the better deal? One of the scriptures that people love to quote I see it all the time as they say, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. It is a verse, is it not? The problem is it has a first phrase, like it has a first clause, right? There's, there's, a, there's a first part of that. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What this means is lose yourself in him. And he'll give you desires that will actually fulfill you, that actually come from him, that you will actually enjoy, that won't lead to a void, that won't lead to brokenness, that won't lead to confusion. He will give you desires that are completely fulfilled in him. So lose yourself in him. Don't lose yourself in yourself. Are you with me? I want to say something, but I don't, I don't want to be mean, but I think I need to speak to it in terms of our culture. Because even, even in Christendom, we have forgotten that part of what Jesus dying for was to free us from our desires that would kill us. And this is true of anyone. Like sometimes we make it about certain agendas or certain groups out in the world, but it's actually just true of anyone. All of us have desires that will kill us. All of us have appetites that are not holy, right? And the calling of the New Testament is to surrender. Like Paul said, to put off the old man and his lusts and his desires. Because I've had people tell me, well, pastor, I was just born this way. Now, this may be shocking what I told them, but this was a person, they were in an alternate lifestyle. And it was actually a good friend of mine who's still a good friend of mine to this day. And we had this conversation. It was a wonderful conversation because it helped me so much understand where he was coming from. Because he said, Pastor, I, I wish that I could be attracted to women. I wish that that, but I'm attracted to men. And, and he said, and I was just born this way and this is just the way it's going to be. And I said, I hear you. And he said, do you think I was born this way? And I said, I do. He said, that helps me. And I said, yes, but I think that's why you have to be born again. Because see, the way I was born, I had a lot of lust and a lot of desires and a lot of things that were not holy. A lot of things that are not consistent or congruent with the word of God, but they were real desires. I really felt them. And, and here's, here's what's different about us as people. We all have a set of besetting sins or desires or lust that are not congruent with the word of God. And yours are different than mine, but I have mine. Are you with me? So we're no different in the fact that categorically or, or ultimately we all have desires that go against God's standard and God's law and God's word. But listen to me very carefully. But that doesn't mean they're right. Because what the gospel calls us to do is to deny ourselves. 
to put off the old man with his lust and to put on Christ to be born again, to become a new creation. That's why Paul says, don't make a provision to live in the flesh. Or let me say it another way, don't, don't make a provision to live in, in sin because the gospel has called you to deny yourself. And it calls me to deny myself. And, and what I'm denying may look different than what you're denying, but this is the equal playing field. If we all want to come after Jesus, all of us are going to have to deny something. Do you see what I'm saying? All of us are going to have desires. The heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, but it needs to be born again. It needs to be redeemed. God needs to create in me a clean heart. Are you with me? So, so number one, desires. Number two, identity. Let's talk about this. How my heart identifies. So he said, if I want to come after him, I have to deny myself, but then I have to take up my cross. Well, what does that mean, take up your cross? Well, you have to understand, when Jesus is talking, this is AD 29. This is before he's crucified and definitely before he rose from the dead, everybody. And so back then, crosses weren't cool jewelry. Back then, it was grotesque, vile, and only the worst of the worst deserved the cross. It, it meant nothing more but a torturous death. So when Jesus, think about the imagery, because now we think about, the, oh, yes, Jesus crossed and we put lilies around it, right? No, 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 no. When he says, take up your cross, I'm pretty sure they all thought, wait a second, we didn't murder. Like, why, why are we taking up a cross? Because what they all knew is the Romans required you to carry the cross beam of the cross if you're being crucified. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, basically, you take up that cross beam, which for them was only, only the murderers and the criminals and the most vile of their society. And they're like, what has this got to do with following you, Jesus? And maybe you ask, what is this? If Jesus carried my cross, if he was crucified on my cross, why would he tell me to carry a cross? Listen to me. He carried the cross of your salvation. You have to carry the cross of your sanctification. Now, that's a church where we don't use a whole lot, but let me just tell you what that word means. Sanctification means that I get saved, but then the Holy Spirit goes to work to make me look like Jesus. So when I get saved, my spirit is saved instantly, but it's still in this body and it's still in this flesh and this flesh has desires and this flesh identifies and thinks a certain way. So now sanctification is about surrendering to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit begin to work in me to transform desire, to transform some of the things that I think and how I act and, and what I want to make me look more like Jesus. And that is a process. Salvation's instant. Sanctification is a process. Are you following me? And so when he's talking about carry your cross, he's, he's letting them know there's a new way to live in this New Testament of grace. And that includes putting to death the old man. And, and ultimately, that carrying of the cross, now we understand it to be identifying with Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because we have a whole culture trying to identify themselves. I've never seen so much confusion on people just trying to figure out who they are or what they are 
are where they fit or what bathroom they go to. And I'm not trying to be funny. It breaks my heart to see this level of confusion to where what, when God created two genders, male and female, right, from the beginning, seems very clear. And now we have, I don't even know the latest count. Last time I counted, we had 70-something genders. And my thought breaks my heart because I'm like, people are confused. And when Jesus is talking about how your heart identifies, he's talking about the fact that you can't find identity in you. We have a culture that says, be your authentic self, right? When our culture says that, please hear what they're saying because authenticity is good. That, that means to be vulnerable, to allow people to see in, to be true, right? That's what that means, to be consistent. In other words, not to be hypocritical or pretend you don't have any problems or to pretend you're better than everybody else or you got everything to be, together. Authenticity is about being real, right? Like if you meet me, I, I believe this to be true because people have repetitively told me many, many times, Pastor, what I love about you is if you hang out with you on here versus listen to you preach on Sundays, pretty much the same person. Yes, because I value authenticity. I'm not going to come up here and pretend to be something that I'm not in my house or, you know, at a restaurant or hanging out with friends. Does that make sense? And we value that in our culture. But when our culture says authenticity, it's something different. In fact, this is one of the great things. I shouldn't say that it's not a great thing. It's one of the dangerous things about our culture is the fact that our grave things about our culture is we're, re- we're redefining words. Right? And so when our culture says be authentic, what they're actually saying is go inside yourself and find your truest feelings and live that out. Well, listen, we're kind of back similarly to what we just talked about. Has anybody, does anybody think that's really wise? If I went inside myself and pulled out the way I strongly felt, number one, it would be different every day, which is why some people change their identity every day, right? And number two, I'd be in jail. And you would too. Because there's sometimes you've had some strong feelings that weren't good. Are you with me? I'd be in jail. You'd be my cellmate. We'd have a prison ministry. <laughs> so when Jesus says, when he's talking, he's like, hey, don't follow yourself. Don't get your identity from yourself. You get your identity from me. You get your identity from the one who created you, from the creator and the author of life. See, the truth is the, the word authentic actually is rooted in a Greek word. And that word means to be true to your origin, not true to your feeling. So what is your origin? God created you before. He told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So being true, if you want to find your authentic self, you have to be true to your origin. That is why Jesus is the only one who can connect you to your father, who is the originator of your identity, and your identity has to be found in him. You don't go deep down in yourself. No, you go through Jesus Christ to your father. This is what Paul says in Romans eight twenty nine. He says, for those he foreknew... That means to know beforehand, just like we were talking about with Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you. Those he foreknew, he predestined. That means he predetermined an end. Now, we have free will, so we get to pick. But he predetermined. When he made you, he had an end in mind. And look what it says. And that end was to be conformed to the image of his son. So God knows exactly who you are. Let me me tell you something that 
that I think is an obvious observation in our culture. Because what I, what I saw was, and, and I'm not trying to pick on gender issues and all that. I understand the real gender dysphoria is real. I understand same-sex attraction is real. As I've already said, I can be very empathic. I have friends and who, wrestle, who have wrestled and are wrestling all that out. I totally get it. But just listen, listen to what I have to say and hear the heart because I'm not making a judgment. I'm trying to give an explanation. We have a culture that at first they just wanted to be tolerated in that if I say I'm this gender or that gender, whatever the case may be, I just want to be a normal human. I think everyone gets the right to be a human, right? Every, everyone should have basic human rights, period. By the way, though, those human rights do not come from a constitution. They come from God, and our forefathers knew that because they even said in the constitution that we were endowed by rights by our creator, not the constitution. So without God, there are no human rights. I don't care what any politically motivated agenda says. When they're claiming this is our right, well, if you're not a Christian and you don't believe in God, there are no rights without God. Because according to our constitution, your rights don't come from the constitution. They come from God. Are you tracking with me? But what I notice is at first, just let me be me, meaning how I identify, whatever gender, however that is. But now it has progressed to where now it's not enough to say, you know, okay, that's you. Now you have to repeat back to me what I say I am and you have to accept it. And now we get to change the English language and we get to, we get to re-identify all pronouns based on how everybody feels. Now, the question is, why? Because that's my question. Like, why is this so important? Because here's what I know. As a man, I've never needed anyone to come tell me, hey, I, I just want you to know I agree with the fact that you think you're a man. I've never needed any. I know I'm a man. Like, I, I, my birth certificate says it, right? Like, I, I look, look like a man, you know. I mean, I, I, I feel like a man, I guess. I don't know. I've never needed a culture and I've never had to condemn a culture for not affirming me enough in my identity. And you know why? What's the difference? Because if your identity comes from crawling down inside yourself and coming up with your identity based on your feelings, it will all be, always be in question because feelings are not concrete. And you will have to try to get people to tell you who you think you are because you can't self-affirm and you really can't self-identify. But when your identity comes from God himself, the creator of all, your heavenly father, and he says son or he says daughter, then God actually affirms it from heaven who you are. And it is settled and absolute and concrete. And I don't have to run around and try to make everybody do pronouns my way because God has told me who I am and God has told me that I'm his son and my identity doesn't come from inside of me but it comes from the heart of God to me by the Holy Spirit and I just agree with it and it's settled. And we have a lot of people disconnected from God who are trying to come up with their own identity and that's why they're like, you better tell me who I am but you better tell me who I think that I am and if you don't, it's mean and hateful. And so our identity comes from here. Here's the last thing. So desires, right? Deny yourself. Identity, take up your cross. And then he says, follow me. This is the issue of authority. 
is the issue of authority. What my heart says. says, you know, it's what my heart wants and how my heart identifies and then what my heart says. Simply put, it means this. Who's in charge of your life? And I know, I know we all know, if you're a Christian, you know the answer. But I'm just saying, does how you're living reflect your statement of God is in charge of my life? I had a conversation with a man who claimed an atheistic worldview. It was a good conversation. I was very frustrating to him. I can make very good arguments, and I, I think that those arguments are good. And I, I understand the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the morality argument. You know, I understand, you know, the kind of the, the, the five, the four different aspects of the cosmological argument, all those things. And so, you know, he, he opened the conversation, so I'm just talking, well, you know, have you considered, you know, like, like the universe itself? I mean, science doesn't have an explanation on its origin other than it all came into being. Space, time, and matter came into being at the same time. He's like, yeah, I understand that. I said, well, then if space, matter, and time came into the be- being at the same time, what created it? Because whatever created it couldn't be matter, couldn't be space, and couldn't be time. So I said, you know, so we're talking. But the bottom line is he was getting frustrated, and I wasn't trying to be frustrated. I just kept asking questions, like explain morality, you know, and explain mental capacity, like how we can have, like, you know, basically C.S. Lewis even said, if, if my brain, like the fact that evolution could give me logical thought means that according to naturalists, my brain is just a bunch of atoms banging off each other inside my head. So should I really trust that when it comes to morality or making decisions? And so we're having that conversation, but, but where he was so adamant, there is no God, there is no God, and I finally just stopped and I thought, you know, this is not a science issue. This is not an information issue. This is a heart issue. And so I asked him the question. I said, hey, I'm not saying it is. This is a, I said, will you give me a different category of question? This is now a philosophical question. I'm assuming you're an atheist, but we're going to just kind of philosophically take on the issue of, let's just say Christianity was real and Jesus rose from the dead. If it were real, and I had proof, and I mean, I could, like, I could told you completely, here's the proof, here's the truth, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. I said, would you become a Christian? And he said, no. And at first I thought, I'm like, like that doesn't even make sense to me. Like I just told you, if Jesus is real, right? Then heaven's real. Hell's real. Everything Jesus said is real. You know, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't asking him to pray a prayer. I was just saying philosophically, let's just play the game. If Jesus were real, would you follow Jesus? His answer was no. And basically his justification was because I don't want anybody telling me how to live my life. And I'm like, aha, I would say many atheists today, that is the issue they have. It is not a brain issue. It's not an information issue. It's not even a faith issue. It's a, I want to be the Lord of my life, which ultimately is where C.S. Lewis started. He didn't believe in God because ultimately he's like, I don't want God meddling in my business. What I would say, though, is this issue exists even inside the church, even with all Christians, because ultimately in Christendom, isn't it kind of true sometimes we're like, well, Lord, I want to follow you with the religious part of my life, but not like the dating part of my life. I'm sorry, is that a cheap shot? 
Lord, I want to follow you with like the eternal part of my life, but not like the monetary part of my life. Like, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my salvation, but, you know, I kind of want to do some things that eh, you may not exactly approve of, but we don't have to talk about those things. Let's just talk about how I'm going to have a good day and you're going to make everything okay. And if we're really honest, guys, this is something you will battle with your entire Christian life is surrendering to his lordship. That's why I think Luke uses the word daily, take up your cross and follow him. Because every day I'm going to have to make a decision. Who is going to be the Lord of my life? And here's what I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to say something very bold and very clear. And that is this. If you are the Lord of your life, you are not a Christian. And I know that's, that's hard. It's like, wait a minute, Pastor. You know, shots fired. Why don't we? Because according to Jesus, if I want to be a follower of Jesus, that means I deny myself and I take up my cross and he becomes the authority of my life. And I'm no longer the authority of my life. Now, why? Why? Because remember what we said in the beginning. I don't have the authority to save my life. He has the authority to save my life. And all I have the authority to do is either make a mess of my life or trust Him with my life. But I don't have the authority to save my life. The root word of authority is author. The author is the one that writes the story. He determines the beginning and he determines, determines the end. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. He's the beginning of your life, right? Before God formed you in the womb, he knew you, and he is the end. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, and we will all stand before God. And here's the reason he gets to be the authority, because only he and he alone can make this declaration that Jesus made in Luke chapter 9, where he says, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you'll lose your life for me, then I'll save it. And ultimately, here's what you need to understand. Being the authority of your life sounds good. But it leads to destruction. Two times Solomon says, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 16. Two times Solomon says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Two different times he says that. And here's why. Because your life in your hands will be lost. But your life in Jesus' hands can never be lost. Because he alone has the authority to save and redeem and deliver and to make your life what God intended it to be when he created you. So don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Amen. Come on, can you give Jesus praise today? Why don't you stand with me and I'm going to ask our prayer team to come and um, line up on the front and we're going to pray. And today, if you need prayer for anything, if you, if you need to be forgiven, if you need salvation, that's fine. If you need, if you're walking through something, listen, life is hard. It's going to be hard whether you follow Jesus or not.
The great thing about following Jesus is there's someone, always someone in the boat, there's someone in the storm when life is hard. And so today, if you're in the storm and you need prayer, we wanna pray with you. And so if you need prayer, I want you to come, but let's bow our head just for a moment as we dismiss. And I'm just gonna ask you, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Is he talking to you about your desires and maybe there's some that we need to surrender to the Lord? Is he talking about your identity and maybe we need to go back to our origin, to our father and, and get identity from him? Or, or is he talking about authority and you realize, you know what, pastor, there's some places I'm still in control in my life. There's some places I haven't fully surrendered to him. My question is, what is he talking to you about? And today, I'm hoping you with me will again say, Lord, I want to follow you. And if that means I need to put off some desires, I will. I want to follow you. If that means I need to surrender my identity and let it come from you, then I will. And Lord, I want to follow you. And if that means that I have to give up being in control of my life and being Lord of my life, then I will. Because God, ultimately, I can't save my life no matter how hard I try. But I can surrender to the one who can. And so, Lord, right now, I just pray for those in this room. Lord, I know you're speaking. Lord, I know that you're speaking to individuals, different things to different people. And God, I just pray there would be a resounding yes from our hearts today around these issues that, yes, emphatically, Lord, we want to follow you. So, Lord, if we need to be forgiven, we're going to ask for forgiveness. If we need to surrender, we're going to lay some things down on the altar. If we need to surrender all of our life, we're going to surrender all of our life. We're going to lay it down. We need to surrender our emotions, our feelings. We're going to lay them down because, God, we want to follow you because you alone can save. And so, Lord, I just thank you today for your goodness and your grace and your love to bring these words to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Come on, can you give Jesus praise today? Yeah. Hey, Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church. And I just want to say thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected. And there's several ways you can do that. Number one, you can download the Pathway app and we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you do, make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel. And then also... Uh, make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.